The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign there on the sign Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Hope you're all doing well. Welcome to another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I have two guests whose work I have been following for years. Uh, people I've swapped emails with and have finally convinced them in all their modesty to join me for a podcast. Uh, if you follow the platform Wyofile, like Wyoming short, it's it's about Wyoming issues, uh, but it's really about big issues that affect hunting, conservation, landscapes, migrations, disease. Uh, Angus Thurmer and Mike Cosmeral. I hope I I said that Mike right. Mike, uh, uh, hopefully I did, but anyhow, they are reporters, journalists out of Wyoming for the, the independent, uh, nonprofit news source called Wyofile. Uh, and if you're interested, I hope you'll go to wyofile.com. And when we're all done, I hope that you'll even go there and make a donation and subscribe. Uh, it is valuable stuff. And even though it's based in Wyoming, it takes on issues that the tentacles extend throughout the West, throughout the Rockies. And for me, if you are interested in, you know, the majority of our audience are hunters. These are topics that affect you as a hunter. Uh, They affect you if you're interested in wild places and wild things. And so I know most journalists are pretty modest. Uh, They don't necessarily like to be in the spotlight. They like the spotlight. They prefer to put others in the spotlight. Um, So I've sent them a list of questions of things that I want to cover, uh, give context to why I think the issues Wyofile reports on are super important. And... I hope that you'll you'll enjoy this. Um, uh, the you know where you've probably encountered their work is corner crossing. Angus is the he, he has become the expert uh, reporting on the topic of corner crossing. There's nobody who's done more work, more background, spoke to more people on the ground than he has. Uh, when we talk about migrations, when we talk about energy development, when we talk about anything related to the conservation and listing or delisting of endangered species of probably wolves, grizzly bears, sage grouse, 
there's no people who address that topic more than than these guys do uh and they're just so modest at the about the quality of their work and the importance of their work that they uh they're like oh shucks randy you got we're, we're just doing our job you know that that's when you know someone is really good at what they do when they say no that's just my job that's what i do uh so anyhow I hope that you enjoy this discussion. Uh, it's my job to kind of keep the questions connected, connect the dots, and keep a, a circle of conversation going here. Uh, and hopefully I do my job because there's no doubt that Angus and Mike know their stuff, uh, know what they're doing. And uh, hopefully when it's all done, you realize the value of independent journalism. Uh, if there is an independent journalist uh, group in your area, I hope you support them. And I hope that you'll support Wildfile. So anyhow, appreciate them being here. Hope we, uh, we can uh, entertain you for an hour or two. Thanks for being here. Well, folks, thanks for being here again today. Uh, all of you know my passion for independent journalism uh my passion for a free press uh and in today's world it seems like that's a little bit harder to find and this audience has heard me say many times the news you get is worth what you pay for it uh so if you want free news it's probably (laughs) probably not worth quite as much but uh with me today are uh angus thermer and mike i hope i i can pronounce your last name kajamal Cosmeral? Yeah, that's. Uh, I'll give you that. Yeah, that's close enough. Okay, you need you need a vowel on the end there. I do. It was it was lost when my ancestors came to the states four generations oh. ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Angus and Mike are joining me. I I'm a subscriber to this uh, news platform called Wildfile, and you guys, at least in the articles that attract me the most angus you kind of seem to be really digging into stuff like corner crossing and and policy and all those kind of things and mike you seem to be like a backcountry dude kind of like i am uh spending a lot of time out there talking about wildlife issues and conservation issues and landscape issues and so a lot of our audience subscribes to your your platform and uh i i guess to start with, I'll start with you, Angus. How do you get into independent journalism like this? There had to been a long path that got you here. Well, I started my reporting career at the Jackson Hole News, uh, sort of right after the upthrust of the Tetons. <laughs> it, it was a while back, and and I I went um, through all the beats in a small town for a weekly paper uh-huh. uh, from school board to uh, criminal justice, cops and courts, uh, county, uh, town government. <clears throat> and one of the uh, arenas that was not being regularly covered, we were quite a small staff when I started, <clears throat> was uh, was um, the National Forest and the Park Service and the and the public lands, mm-hmm. and they developed into incredibly important topics in a county where uh, most of the land is uh, federally uh, owned and controlled. Uh, 
And after uh, many years at the Jackson Hole News and then the Jackson Hole News and Guide, uh, I decided it was uh, time for a change and um, joined the nonprofit Wildfile uh, and uh, left the uh, weekly uh, paper and its daily cousin, the Jackson Hole Daily, in capable hands and began reporting uh, uh, on a sort of broader canvas that uh, allowed me to explore some uh, statewide issues. Yeah, well, I don't know if you realize it, but your reporting on statewide issues has become Rocky Mountain issues, Rocky, <laughs> Rocky Mountain readership to the the coast uh, with the work that you've done on that. That's maybe by intention, maybe not, but either, either way, the result is excellent. Well, thank you. There's some interesting stories out there for certain, and a very important resource in Wyoming yeah. that a lot of uh, other states don't have. So it's not surprising that um, people are interested in what goes on uh, in the in the equality state. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, where how did this path get you here? Yeah, my introduction to Wyoming journalism uh, at least stems from Angus, actually. I'll get into that. But um, I uh, first got involved in journalism about 15 years ago. Uh, I uh, went to the University of Colorado and got a graduate degree in journalism, which at that time, the industry was kind of in the early stages of a collapse that hastened. Uh, while I was in school, the Rocky Mountain News folded. Um, uh, several of my professors were uh, staffers there, uh, so it's pretty alarming, but had a love for it and uh, stuck with it. Uh, I uh, worked for like a solar energy trade pub uh, back in what was the infancy of that industry, uh, and then was drawn north to, to the Jackson Hole News and Guide uh, back when Angus was the editor um, a little over a decade ago, uh, he hired me on as the environmental reporter. Uh, so, so kind of, I followed in Angus's footsteps, so to speak at the, uh, Jackson Hole News and Guide in covering, uh, environmental issues, wildlife, wildlife, national forest. Um, we got a wildlife refuge in the Valley. And then a little, little about a year and a half ago, uh, also followed him over to wildfile to, um, kind of provide some parallel reporting to what Angus covers at the cool. nonprofit. So that's that's my path. Well, it's interesting that you're a nonprofit at Wildfile, and I think it's great that you are because then you don't have these strings attached, right? Because there's there's always this feeling that is this really what is the news, or is this you know got some taint to it because of what the ownership is, or maybe what the the funding is of, you know, advertising and, and everything else. So I think that's, from my standpoint on the outside, that's part of why you guys can go after issues that maybe some other people would stay away from because you, you guys live in Wyoming and the rest of the country treats Wyoming as like this colony. You just give us cheap energy and everything will be fine. And 
you know that creates some some interesting things where energy and and livestock and, and agriculture are some pretty important things and then you got this thing called tourism uh that's really important in wyoming and you guys have all these issues on your landscape that are emerging or, or have a lot of priority in the west and i'm your in your neighbor to the north of of montana and uh, I think there's a, a lot of things that uh, I read in Wildfile that are so applicable here, probably applicable in Idaho, Colorado, uh, you name it. But do you, do you guys think that uh, the topics that are Wyoming-centric, do you ever see them as, as national topics? Or do you automatically say, well, this is, this is a national topic. It just happens to be here in Wyoming. I think uh, the stories that we report are first and foremost uh, Wyoming stories, as as you can see from <clears throat> the name of our organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, not many states have the uh, resources, the natural resources uh, that Wyoming has, or the open spaces, and so <clears throat> it's it's relatively easy to understand how people's attention can uh, be drawn to what's going on here, whether it's migration, uh, whether it's uh, energy production, uh, transmission lines through sage-grouse habitat, and things like that. Um, they, they have an impact uh, on, a, on a much larger scene than... Um, yeah, then just Wyoming. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's why uh, you may not agree with this, but from the outside, I always say that Wyoming is treated as this energy colony, you know, kind of like this old world look of things of you people out there in the hinterlands, you just make sure that we get our resources and well, you know, we, we're not that worried about you guys. Just, just give us cheap energy or, or, or whatever else it is. And so, I don't know if that's the way Wyomingites feel about it, but as someone from the outside who travels to your state hunting a lot, uh, it just seems that there are times where you are expected to bear the burden of energy independence and a whole lot of other things, and uh, that has a huge impact on the landscape. Like you're talking about transmission lines, solar farms. I've, I mean, I've read so many of your things, impacts that has on sage grouse, impacts it has on grizzly bears and everything else. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Go Hunt. And as you know, I use that a lot. And I use it for getting tags. I use it for planning hunts. I use it for maps. I use it for the store. You name it, I use it. And everything I need is right in one place. But now they've moved a lot of it over to the app. And the most powerful thing for me is their filtering, which is on the app where when you are on your phone, you can be in the app, do the filtering, and go right to the maps. Really cool. Go check it out. If you want to sign up for Go Hunt, use promo code Randy out at GoHunt.com, and they will put $50 of store credit into your account with promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler, and over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, 
Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks can't beat them. Go check them out. Uh, I, I guess the, the trying to, to connect that dot is when you're doing these stories in independent journalism, it, it is all of you get together and say, Hey, these are the topics that that fill our goal and our objective, or is it just, hey, this topic popped up, someone better go get a get a story on that, or is it a little bit of both? I think it's more the latter. I mean, we of course we you know kind of prioritize topics, um, but uh, you know there's a there's a dearth of journalists, uh, not just in Wyoming and the Greater Yellowstone region. We're, we're all, we all live, um, all three of us, uh, but, uh, nationally, um, uh, you know, uh, I, you, you'd asked us, uh, you know, ahead of when we spoke, um, uh, some of the challenges of independent journalism and, and I bounced that off of our, our boss, boss, Matt Copeland, uh, and he pointed out that, uh, 60% of the print uh, newsroom jobs in the United States disappeared between 2018, or I'm sorry, 2008 and 2020. Whoa. Uh, and that 20% of the remaining journalists live and work in New York, DC, or LA. Uh, so there's just a lot fewer professional journalists paying attention to the issues, wow. uh, whether it's whether it's a migration corridor that the whole world is watching. Uh, or uh, a, you know, a critical juncture in the civil lawsuit on corner crossing, uh, and uh, so oftentimes it's it's kind of on us. <laughs> we either we turn something out, or it's not going to be out there, um, kind of in a factual manner. Uh, and so uh, you know, in, in those times, it's our job to pounce and produce the story and educate okay. people. Yeah, do you, does that? Yeah, when you realize that, I when you you're saying that, Mike, you probably we can see each other on camera, even though we're not recording video. You probably saw my reaction. Whoa, that many of the professional journalists have disappeared. Yeah. So, for those of you still having places where you can go and and do your work, does that create this level of responsibility among you guys? Like, hey, we got to get this story. We we got to tell this through the lens of Wyomingites. Because the old saying, you know, if you don't tell your story, someone else will tell it, and it may not be the way you want it told. Uh, I think about how a lot of your stories could be told if it was an outsider who doesn't have the context. And so does that, that come with some level of feeling of burden or responsibility to, to do that? I mean, I certainly feel a, a level of responsibility. Um, uh, you know, if I feel 
beholden to to anything it's in a in a sense it's the it's the natural resources and the wildlife that i'm writing about um and i'm very aware that oftentimes if we don't report something that it's not going to get out there and it's you know people aren't going to be educated about it and they're not going to be impassioned about it because they don't know about it um uh you know writing i think that angus and i are both wyoming residents so of course we write from a wyoming kind of point of view uh it's not necessarily but i think it just kind of comes with writing and living in the state and being surrounded by wyoming sources it's not like making concerted effort to write for wyoming people it's just how it just how it it, you know it's just our reality okay well I've, i've uh had kind of a counterpart of yours you guys probably know todd who has a mountain journal here out of bozeman uh yeah. todd's been on this podcast and we've talked about a lot of these same things yeah. and, and he writes about the greater yellowstone area also and he uh, i've asked him for his uh kind of elevator speech and out on your website you guys really have it it says people places and policy uh, is that, that kind of like the triumvirate of issues that that you're you just say it's got to fall under this umbrella? I think our our stories generally start with a reporter um, who is keeping track of the uh, daily developed developments on her or his beat, and then um, these topics are brought up in a. Uh, an editorial meeting and they're chewed over a little bit. Sometimes they take some discussion. Sometimes it's just a um, um, natural um, progression um, that stems from things that are uh, happening, um, such as the, the die-off of uh, deer and antelope from this last severe winter or the um, slow march or steady march of chronic wasting disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, These things uh, begin to emerge, and um, the reporter on a particular beat begins to examine them, and uh, there's just a natural maturing that happens on each of these topics. And uh, eventually... Editors and other reporters weigh in and uh, say, "Have you thought about this?" As as the ideas become more complex, um, mm-hmm. you should you should do maybe step back and and remind us of where we are uh, now that you've done twenty five stories on this particular topic or something like that. How about exploring this particular character in depth, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, but it all it all begins with the reporter uh, staying abreast of her or his uh, topic. When, when you say their beat, for those of us who aren't journalists, what does that mean? When you say, "Oh, this is your beat," this is that just hey, I, I like this. I, I mean, this is my my passion in life, and that becomes my beat. Or is it something that's assigned? Is it geographic? Is it topical? Is it? I, I have no idea what. Uh, Angus, what's your beat? Well, it has been natural resources, but that has not uh, stopped me uh, from going to the Teton County Courthouse to report on a lawsuit uh, 
against Wyoming's abortion ban law uh, and hasn't stopped me from uh, attending uh, um, uh, legislative committee meetings, which could be considered a, a legislative beat. But uh, if it's on a topic that uh, I've been reporting about, whether it's water development or uh, um, some hunting um regulation um uh, it i'll get in there mike what's your beat yeah kind of generally uh you know i say wildlife and natural resources also um uh you know if i think if you go to the wildfile website technically it just lists us as reporter um and you know wildfile has allowed us plenty of kind of wiggle room like angus was alluding to so yeah one of the last stories i wrote was uh i tagged along for an afternoon with a guy uh, a, a long shot uh presidential candidate he's actually from red lodge so up in your <laughs> country who uh who's touring the country from a horse-drawn buggy to for to run for president and he's actually an attorney who is suing yellowstone and I just, I just heard all, all these elements, and heard all these elements, and thought, man, what a story! And and why, you know, the editors certainly encouraged me to write about that. Um, you know, not just, I mean, it's fascinating, and uh, and and you know, there's just not hard, rigid kind of borders to to our beats, so to speak. Okay. I, yeah, I, I but beat in a general sense, you know, it's just a topical area. There, I think in print journalism, it's long been the standard. If you're a reporter, you have a beat. Okay, uh, but probably most institutions uh, allow quite a lot of wiggle room within that. Okay, because uh, Angus, you brought up chronic wasting disease, which gets into feed grounds, which gets into uh, everything related to wildlife in Wyoming. The way that you guys report chronic wasting disease is way different than chronic wasting disease gets reported in the hook and bullet media and the hunting media. And there's usually when it's brought up in those contexts or in those media platforms, it's given two or three paragraphs because it's controversial. It's like, well, we don't want to upset this group and we don't want to stir up the pot here. You guys report on it just differently very factually very here's here's where we're at here's where we're going what are we going to do about it uh do you guys notice a difference like like i do between the way you guys report it and how you approach it versus uh, and i'm just using that as as a topic uh you know i could use sage grouse you know the a lot of the outdoor media won't touch the sage grouse thing because it's too political you guys will touch sage grouse in the impacts of whether it's solar or wind or, or whatever energy or whatever development. Uh, do you guys ever notice the, the, those differences or is it just like, no, this is the way we do it. You know, not our, not, not our business, how other people go about it. I think it's just the way we do it. Um, uh, and uh, we, we do it by uh, paying attention to science and the experts and Mike is particularly uh, good at that. He interviews uh, uh, a lot of people and reads a lot of studies uh, that will 
tell you exactly um, what's going on. And from there, uh, a reporter can then reach out and say, uh, uh, what's your take on, on this study and what, and, and what's the impact of these particular, uh, facts? Yeah. I, you know, you brought up chronic wasting disease, Randy. Um, I think part of the reason maybe we write more about it in Wyoming or in more depth is because it's been kind of a really big deal for a really long time in Wyoming. Uh, you know, I, uh, correct me if I'm mistaken. I believe first, uh, first place it was encountered in the wild, at least was, uh, South, uh, Eastern Wyoming, what, 40 years ago, yeah. uh, uh, or just across the border in Colorado. I can't remember the first exactly where, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that region, and then it's kind of rippled northward and westward ever since, uh, and, 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 you know, has really hit, uh, some herds in the state for, for a really long time. So they've been able to track it, uh, slowly. Whereas in like Montana, you know, it grabbed a lot of headlines in the last five years because chronic wasting disease just got there. Um, but it's been, it's been a reality, uh, 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 you know, wildlife has dealt with it here for, uh, for, for now generations of, of, you know, wildlife, um, and you know, there's, I, I wrote a story, uh, last year about there's a deer herd, uh, kind of in central Wyoming in the area around like Boysen Reservoir. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. that on the, yep. on the wind river? I've fished uh, there before. You have gotcha. Yeah. Probably walleye. I'm going to yeah. guess. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, the mule deer herd in that region, uh, CWD prevalence is, is north of 60%. There's some seems to be some hot spots within the region. Some outfitters in the area are reporting 90 plus percent of the mule deer bucks are killing have chronic wasting disease. So when I hear wow. something like that, I mean, I just heard that anecdote about that hunt area and the crazy prevalence rates in some unrelated meeting, it was brought up as an aside. And, you know, when I hear something like that and Googled it, and <laughs> couldn't find any information on it. I was, I just thought, you know, what a story. And that led yeah. to a longer story about, you know, and what ended up being, the, I believe the USGS is studying prevalence in that area. And, um, yeah. and uh, another element of it, I think the reason why it's got a lot of attention from Angus and I over the years is um, we both live in the Southern portion of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's the only, it's the only kind of place, uh, where, where the vast majority of elk are uh, congregated, uh, on elk feed grounds every year. So that's also mm-hmm. been kind of, uh, it, and it's just chronic wasting disease has most generally has just arrived there, uh, yeah. in, in elk at least, um, in the last decade or so. And so there's a lot of people watching to see, what the implications will be in terms of populations. And eventually it's certainly uh, likely to affect hunting opportunity. Yeah. Uh, are both of you still based in Jackson? I am. And um, Mike? I, I lived in Jackson for 11 years. Uh, I actually just uh, moved down to Pinedale. I lost my oh. housing in Jackson and, and it is oh. uh, not easy to get back in especially yeah. on a reporter's salary. Um, mm. and so I'm about an hour and 15 minutes away down in yeah. 
in uh, Pinedale area now. Yeah, I always tell my wife, if you leave me, just forward my mail to Pinedale, Wyoming. <laughs> and that's where I'm going. <laughs> I spent, well, we did a, a hunt there last year we're talking about. The, the, it's an episode about migrations that ha- happens to just be a hunt, but it's more about the migration stuff. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Tough. And I know some of you are asking me, Randy, why Mountain Tough? Well, I'm training for the biggest hunt of my life in August of 2024. And now that I'm into this, I wish I would have done this when I was 39 instead of waiting until I'm 59. I've already started the on-ramping, and I'm progressing through the Bodyweight Foundation program, and I'm feeling so much better. I'm feeling better mentally, physically. I'm accountable to myself, and I'm pretty excited about it. So if you're interested in making an investment in your health and your hunting, go out to Mountain Tough, use promo code RANDY, and when you sign up, You get 14 days to start with. They'll add another 30 days to your free trial when you use promo code Randy. Uh, And you guys and the the stuff you put out there and the resources that you provide for me to look further into just a topic like that. uh, I, I... I use your stuff for my media platforms a lot. Uh, that's why I feel obligated to be a subscriber at a minimum. I, uh, <laughs> you, you guys really open the eyes of a lot of people. And uh, Angus, you, you've probably been at this longer than anybody. And when we have this on your website, people, places, and policy, you guys, maybe you underwent this change sooner or quicker than Bozeman did, but we have this thing called the episode or the TV series Yellowstone and Kevin Costner plays some cowboy dude, John Dutton or something. I've never watched any of it, but it has brought pressure to Montana like nobody could have ever imagined. Everyone shows up here thinking I'm going to be the whatever the Duttons or whatever their name is. Uh, 
and that puts a lot of brings in a lot of dynamics to how people operate or or live on these places and the policies that address those pressures and concerns uh a lot of your stuff is about those people and how they view their lands and their landscapes and then the policies that go with that uh you see any of that changing down in your part of the world there is a foot on the gas there also just like it is in all the beautiful quiet well somewhat quiet <laughs> mountain valleys where you're going to we're going to have more of this stuff of new arrivals new people different maybe i don't want to say intentionally different values but just maybe not an understanding of the histories and and the legacies and and the way that that these lands and these these wild things have been used you, you guys see that as a continued thing in your part of the world or is or is it just kind of filled in now? Um, I, I, think, I think you're right, Randy. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, uh, we notice is that this change is happening uh, faster than anybody anticipated. It's been going on for a, a while, uh, for a long time. And the... Uh, all of us who moved here, who weren't born here, um, created a, a a little bit of change for the people who were uh, here before. And we may, when we first got here, dressed a little bit differently than uh, uh, those who were born here. Uh, had a few uh, different uh, habits. Um, were eager to absorb the uh, local culture and um, uh, eager, I hope, to become good neighbors and understand um, what the ethos uh, is of the community around us. Uh, and I think that's the challenge that the communities in the West uh, face today is um, uh it's educating, quite frankly, the uh, people who come here uh, uh, with one particular set of ideas, and showing them that, uh, that this is this is the way it's it's worked before. Um, we think these ideas are good and valid. Uh, if you don't follow them, um, the grouse are going to die. The antelope are going to get strung up on a fence and. Uh, and um, you know something might happen to uh, happen to the elk. Uh, on yeah. the other hand, the some of the ideas that are brought in uh, are are uh, necessary wake up calls uh, for maybe uh, a a community that has believed that it could always get by doing things the old fashioned way. Um, in a new and changing world, and that won't always work. No, I I think we could all yearn for the life of Grandpa. Mm. When really, when we think about the life of Grandpa, it wasn't quite as as fond as maybe we want to think it out to be. But Mike, when you said you your housing kind of got you displaced from Jackson to Pinedale, that's that's what made me think of it. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the pressures that are, are happening in these places. Uh, but then 
you know, like here you got Bozeman and everyone, uh, ours, our pressure relief valve was only 30 miles away in Livingston, but now Livingston is yeah. of the same saying, would you Bozeman people quit this? Would, so are the Pinedale people saying, Hey, would you Jackson people just stay there? We, we didn't ask for this. Yeah, that's, that's a reality. I mean, when someone like me comes to Pinedale and, uh, and other people in my situation, it changes the community. And there's just no question. Mm-hmm. Angus just said it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was sitting, I was in my driveway, you know, in Wyoming, we have a license plate system where um, you can tell what counties <laughs> by the numbers on their plates. And, yeah. and by and large, the people of Pinedale have been very welcoming and kind to me. But somebody um, who I understand commutes to Jackson every day for work and probably doesn't have a great view of Jackson Hole, uh, and and you know there are some understandable elements to that. Uh, she saw the twenty-two plates on my vehicle uh, and uh, shouted out, um, uh, "F bomb, Jackson Hole," <laughs> <laughs> which um, yeah, so. So there has been an element of that for sure. Yeah. Well, the Montana has that same system where Gallatin County is your it's a six on your license plate here yeah. where Bozeman is. And so if you drive out to the far hinterlands of northeast Montana and you have a six on your license plate, you're like, dang, I should have bought one of those vanity plates that said, you know, cowboy up or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) something that that could disguise you because you get ratted out just by your license plate. Um, One of your special topics that's listed on your website, and this is where I think most people in my audience have connected to you, Angus, is corner crossing. And when we talk about this differing, I don't know if value systems is the right way, but to explain it, but just a different approach to, uh, I often call them the new new age landowner. They're not people who are here running cows, putting up hay, making a living off a ranch or off a big piece of land. Now it's kind of like, well, it was an investment and it's a place. It's kind of one of my check mark items to indicate you know, I've made it in life or whatever might be the purpose or just was a dream of theirs. Do you think there's anything that illustrates this difference in in traditional values of, of Wyomingites versus maybe a new new paradigm, as does the corner crossing? Well, well uh, that's a tough one uh, to answer. Uh, maybe one way of looking at it is uh, if the owner of um, this particular ranch in southeast Wyoming was there full time and um, and had his pickup truck stuck in a ditch one day and, and his neighbor his neighbor or a guy down the road, or a guy from the next town, helped him get out, there'd be a bond there. Mm-hmm. And if that if that person ever said, gee, um, you know, I, uh, I got this, I drew an elk tag for this area. Um, any chance I could cut across uh, your 
your South 40 uh, uh, to go hunt, um, you can imagine that the neighbor might get a, um, a warm reception. Yeah. So that's just a hypothetical uh, situation that illustrates how being on a particular piece of property full time um, uh, might affect a relationship. Yeah. And I, it was kind of a, an interesting thing. Uh, this week I was invited to uh, an evening dinner with a lot of large landowners who are not what I'd call working landowners. Uh, they're, they are mostly out-of-state landowners. And they had their people there. Uh, and it was a fascinating discussion. And one of them said, yeah, we allow public hunting of elk on because it seems like everywhere you go if you got elk you're going to have some sort of friction or there's going to be issues worthy of public dialogue uh and they actually let they they bring on five people a week on their property and they said the idea is we want to push these elk off here to the public we, 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 last thing we want to do is be that bad neighbor. And as they were talking about what they do and over uh, with the large properties they have, they have quite a few of them, how many hunters they run through in a year. They don't charge anything. It's just, please come and help us manage elk. Uh, the person said to me, he said, you know, in a lot of instances, what we have is maybe a neighbor issue and less of an elk issue. And we don't want to be the neighbor issue. And, uh, that struck me as, as kind of a pretty uh, open-minded or, or at least responsible statement for the person acknowledging, look, we aren't from here, but we are trying our best to be part of what is here. And I, I don't know how you could make a better gesture on that than to tell the, you know, the local community, because for them, they said, you must live, you must be a resident of this county. We don't want a bunch of you Bozeman people or Billings people or Kalispell people coming to do this. We only do this for people in our county. Uh, so I, I, I think the, the point of that is, one, that, we have a tendency to lump everybody into the same category, right? Ah, damn out of state billionaire or the, you know, this guy or those damn people from Jackson, right, Mike? (laughs) Uh, And I think we're the, we're the, for me, the more valuable information and the more valuable relationships and stories are not letting those I guess tags and labels get hung on everybody because these are really complicated topics. You think about what all goes into this corner crossing discussion or access to elk or too many elk or how do you manage elk? They're way more complicated than just saying you are this and we are that. And let's fight with each other. Uh, You guys, you know, I've read some of your articles uh, about how landowners are addressing that. Some of your landowners in Wyoming are trying to figure out, you know, I'm not here to feed elk. I'm here to feed cattle. Uh, How can people help me? I don't want brucellosis in my cattle. I want these elk out of here. Let's move them around. Uh, Can can you guys talk about your feed ground thing? Because that that topic came up in my meeting the other night also about Montana. Should we, uh, would we ever do the Wyoming thing of, uh, using feed grounds to eliminate elk pressure on private lands. 
I mean, that, that, that's a, I know it's a big can of worms, but you guys have written a lot on it. Yeah. What, what's, what's the feedback been when you've done that? You know, one thing I'd say is I, I think the answer to that is it's unlikely Montana will do that. Uh, man, I can't quite recall yeah. the exact year, but I want to say six or seven years ago, the Montana uh, Wildlife, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission wrote Wyoming Game Fish Commission a letter encouraging yep. them to uh, do away with the feed ground system. At that time, chronic wasting disease I think it might have been before it was discovered in Montana, and they were worried on how uh, higher prevalence rates and you know the southern part of the ecosystem could affect Montana elk. Um, so at least at that time they were pushing, um, yeah. you know, to to do away with it, uh, which makes me think it's probably pretty unlikely it's coming any, soon anytime to Montana. Yeah, and. Some someone just threw that out there as well. Maybe I mean I, I I would agree, Mike. There's like zero chance of it, but it gets me thinking about all the issues in Wyoming that you guys have now. It's yeah. not like anyone would say today, "Boy, I'm really glad we arrived at feed grounds as a solution." Yeah, yeah. You know, Wyoming Game Fish Department right now is in the process of re- actually creating the first ever a management plan for elk feed grounds. So. Uh, in a sense, the window is open to make some reform. Uh, you know, whether or not that reform will come about remains to be seen. Um, there is a really long history of feeding elk in Wyoming, and uh, it's, it's, it's just embedded in the kind of culture and uh, in a, almost in the way of life. Uh, it, it, it's provided a, a way of keeping uh, elk off of private land and huge, you know, tens of millions of acres really, mm-hmm. um, in the Southern part of the, of the ecosystem. And, uh, there's been, you know, generations of kind of advocacy folks trying to get the state to move away from it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even, uh, memorably for me, the, the former manager of the national elk refuge, uh, Brian Glassbell, he's moved on. Um, I mean, he gave a speech one time and, and was pretty forthcoming and, and basically just said, like, let's just be honest about this. Everyone thinks feeding elk is a bad idea. Uh, it's yeah. the essence of what he said. Um, uh, but there are a lot of political and um, uh, pr- pressures uh, that explain why uh, elk feeding has persisted here for so long. Well, I guess back to that people, places, and policy thing that you guys have on your website. I mean, feed grounds are—it's—it's it's the place, the feed ground. It's a policy we're going to feed elk, but it affects people with a whole lot of differing opinions. Uh, in a state like Wyoming, I, with so many resource topics to to write about, uh, do you guys ever get the the opportunity to say? Well, this is something I just want to go and do, and it's something on my list, and you eventually get to that on your list. Like, Mike, you were earlier saying, you know, about the story you read. It was a sidebar thing, and you said, oh, that'd make a cool story about the CWD in this herd. Do you get a lot of opportunity to do that, or are things just coming out so fast and so many topics and issues there that you feel like you're <laughs> you're running and scrambled? 
to do your job more so than the time and and availability to go and and do some i don't know if you'd call them pet projects or projects of your interest i i know angus i just keep thinking about how much work you've put into the corner crossing thing uh i'd say a lot of people look to you as that expert on that i I don't know. Was, was that just, is that an interest of yours or was that just, Hey, this was a new story that came up and I felt I had to do it. Um, it was a, a new story that came up and it just was very interesting. And there were some twists and turns, uh, all along the way. And it kept on being captivated and, uh, um, it was of interest to a lot of people and had implications for um, uh, a lot of public land and access, and it kind of uh, grew on itself. Um, but um, th- there are a lot of stories that uh, kind of uh, need some catching up to be done on them. Um, when uh, a particular reporter gets involved in a, a continuing saga and an in-depth um, project like uh, corner crossing, and it's difficult to uh, juggle that some of the time, uh, some stuff gets left by the wayside. Uh, uh, nevertheless, as a reporter, one of the, one of the biggest challenges is. Um, when you see something that's uh, interesting and you go and talk to all your friends uh, about it and you tell a great story uh, about this particular observation that you made, uh, and then, gee, if it was so interesting, why don't you do a story about it? And sometimes it just goes right over your head. Uh, but, uh, but, but, um, there are opportunities, uh, to go to the editors and say, Hey, uh, th- this is something I came across. Uh, do you think it would be, uh, do you think you'd like a story about it? Um, and Mike's presidential candidate from Red Lodge is, a. uh, uh uh, perfect example. I, I, Mike, were you just trying to paint Montanans like Red Lodge, Montana, <laughs> as like some weird place? <laughs> I just drove <laughs> through Red Lodge, and it's a lovely little town. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, I think uh, you know. Uh, uh, we we certainly have the latitude. That, you know, Angus was talking about how he got into the corner crossing reporting. It just kind of was on his beat and, and became ever more interesting. And that ha- that's just true of a lot of topics that we kind of cover. Um, you know, whether migration policy for me, um, and then you know you're in it, and so you're learning more and more, and you have a better sense of what's important, and you have tips coming in because you're kind of. Um, uh, uh, working, uh, with sources all the time. Uh, and, but, uh, very often, uh, you know, we have the latitude to, to step outside of kind of the normal, uh, uh, you know, themes of, of the beat and write kind of one-off stories about things that just interest us. I mean, I, I think that happens all the time and is encouraged. Yeah. Uh, 
And yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, one example comes to mind is, uh, I, again, I was doing an interview about something unrelated and, and heard, uh, uh, an anecdote about how you know, grizzly bears, um, were running into, uh, people at these moth congregation sites way up high in the Absaroka range. Uh, and, and yeah, brought it up to editors. I mean, of course I'm fascinated by that. Well, I mean, that's yeah. brought it up to the editors and was certainly encouraged to l- look into it and, and go up there and ended up spending a day with a biologist who's crafting a management plan for these moth sites. Uh, and lo and behold, while we were there, uh, this is last summer, it, we saw people hiking up this peak and, uh, and, and he looking through his spotting scope was kind of narrating as he watched a grizzly bear run <laughs> from these people peak bagging. Yeah. Uh, and that was, yeah, that, that to me is just an, and it, it made for a good story and, and, and you know, where it came from was just personal hearing something in an interview about an unrelated topic. Uh, and, uh, uh, just, you know, being fascinated by it and wanting to dig in and getting the green light from the editors to do so. Yeah. How many of there are you that are quote unquote doing the beat at YO file? We have, uh, I, I believe Angus, correct me if I'm wrong, but 11 people on staff. And I think, uh, 11 or 12 on staff, uh, and I think like the the reporters and editors constitute uh, about roughly two thirds of that. So it's okay. a pretty small organization. Um, our, wow. our counterpart, kind of up in Montana, Montana Free Press. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. come across yep. plenty of their stories. Oh yeah. But to the south, it's the Colorado Sun. Um, most most states have uh, these kind of uh, somewhat new. Uh, nonprofit uh, member supported business model type uh, news outlets that are coming up. Yeah. The reason I ask is I get a, an email from you guys just about every day with new topics and new articles. I'm like, man, that's a lot of work to put out that much stuff, find that many ideas and that many stories. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to, Go on to two questions here, and, and I'm I'm going to put both of you on the spot a little bit. The first question will be, I'll give each of you a crack at this one, is what non-Wyomingites have wrong about Wyoming and Wyoming citizens? And then the other is, if you have a crystal ball, uh, what would be your biggest or maybe two or three biggest issues that you see in Wyoming in the next I don't care, one year, five years, right? whatever that time horizon is. Uh, because I'm, I'm always fascinated by when I travel and people hear I'm from Montana, they think I ride a horse to work. Mm. You know, they, they, they think that I have 300 acres with, you know, 80 cows. And, you know, that, that's kind of this perception a lot of people have of Montanans. And so I'm curious what what the world or what the country or what non-Wyoming people have wrong about Wyoming folks. You know, you, you, every, today everyone wants to categorize you. Oh, Wyoming's a red state or Wyoming is this or Montana is this or whatever. What do you think that the, the country has wrong about 
Wyoming that if they lived there, they'd see it a little differently, or if they had your jobs, they'd see it a little differently. I'll take a crack at it. Um, I, uh, you know, a, a lot of the people coming to Wyoming uh, are coming for one reason to go to uh, the, the national parks in the northwest corner of the state, yep. uh, in Teton and Yellowstone. And so, you know, they're driving across the state to get here if they're coming from the east, uh, from the south. And I think a lot of people just see sagebrush and kind of what they see as relatively nondescript habitat and just kind of think it's a wasteland. Uh, And I'm certainly guilty of that. I mean, when I moved west and I left at like a big field of sagebrush, I didn't I thought like, man, like, what's this doesn't offer a whole lot. Um, but, uh, you know, living here, um, I've certainly come to appreciate, uh, how, how rich wildlife community is out in, in huge, just swaths of the high desert and, and how, uh, you know, another element, uh, is just how many fascinating places there are in Wyoming, uh, biologically in terms of just like tourist attractions that, uh, your typical visitor coming to the state who's has their sights set on Yellowstone, I um, might not appreciate. But, you know, from the Bighorn Range to Medicine Bow to the High Desert Sagebrush, Red Desert, you name it, the state is just covered with uh, fascinating, fascinating and biologically rich kind of landscapes. Yeah. Angus, is there anything we got wrong about the Wyoming people? Um, uh, no, I, I like that idea about, uh, the sagebrush sea that, uh, Mike just articulated uh, until I started, before I started hunting antelope or, uh, sage grouse, I don't hunt sage grouse anymore. <laughs> you can't hunt antelope this year, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it was easy to see that. Uh, country on both sides of Interstate 80 is some kind of uh, drive-through flyover wasteland, uh, but but it's so rich, and um, you should uh, really look at it as um, something akin to the Serengeti, uh, and you might not see uh, vast herds of uh, the wildlife uh, uh, right then and there. But boy, uh, on the day that you do see a mile long line of antelope, uh, all on the same same eight inch wide path, single file, <laughs> going for dozens and dozens and dozens of miles uh, through the snow, uh, it's it, it's absolutely remarkable, and it's. And it's on par with uh, um, the wildebeest and uh, and uh, so on, uh, other great migrations that you can see elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I'll, I'll add one more misconception. Sure. You asked about the people. Um, yeah. When I started at Wildfile, uh, I, I spent a year helping cover politics. Um, and, uh, you, you know it's often said that Wyoming uh, is the most conservative state in the nation. And and I think w- when people say that they are thinking of a statistic that, it, that rings true, which is that in a presidential election, uh, a higher percentage of the electorate 
uh, votes Republican uh, than in any other state. Uh, but that is just uh, that is just one data point. And I think if you look at the brand of um, uh, politics that has dominated the Republican Party, which has been dominant in Wyoming for you know, 30, 40 years now, um, uh, it's it's more moderate uh, than than the the Wyoming legislature. Uh, arguably up until recently has been more moderate than say the Montana legislature, the Idaho legislature, um, or a lot of the state legislatures from the, from the deep South. Um, even though, even though, yeah, you know, you can, there's one statistic you can cite to say that we're this, the most conservative state. I think that that is a huge oversimplification. Yeah. Well, I got an awareness of that. I sat on the governor's grizzly bear round table back in 99, 2000, 2001, where five people from Montana, five from Wyoming and five from Idaho. We sat together and over the course of a little over two years would meet every quarter. And we were the ones who crafted the conservation strategy that right now has been out there for discussion now for what, eight years with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the greater Yellowstone uh, subpopulation. And one of the people on that committee who I got to be, I, I felt a lot of kinship with, was uh, Albert Summers uh, from Pinedale. Uh, he's now one of your legislators. Uh, he was not a legislator at that time. He's the Speaker of the House. <laughs> oh, is he? He's, wow. Okay. So at that time, he was a rancher. Uh, and his ability to articulate and represent the the interest of not just ranchers, but all of the folks in the Pinedale, Wind River, uh, southern range of what would be the primary conservation area is very impressive. Uh, and it was just fun to get to know him. And he, there were a few people who turned over off the committee over the course of that almost two and a half years, but he was the one who stuck on there. And whenever we would have our meetings, uh, mostly we'd tell hunting stories. But uh, I, when you talk about, you know, Wyomingites aren't, you know, aren't these dim light bulb rubes, uh, Albert was a very good uh, example of that. Uh, but then we get to uh, my other question was, what if you had a crystal ball? None of us do. Uh, you got any things that you see cooking out there on, on the Wyoming landscape in the next one, two, three, five years that, hey, this is something that is going to have a lot of impact to a lot of people. It's going to make a lot of news headlines. That's not easy, but it's, it, it's on our lap whether we want it to be or not. You got any of those that are out there? Yeah, you know, one th- one thing I'll say, Randy. Um, uh, I was uh, uh, attending a global migration summit at Jackson Lake Lodge uh, this summer, <clears throat> and uh, uh, one of the there's a panel, and actually, Albert, incidentally, Albert Summers was on that panel, but uh-huh. uh, another panelist was uh, a, a University of California Berkeley uh, professor named Arthur Middleton, who. Um, is is also a senior advisor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture about kind of wildlife habitat, and yeah. and Arthur uh, expressed a concern uh, that that 
the TV show Yellowstone, which you alluded to, you know, really is driving uh, a kind of tidal wave of interest in living in the West. And, and uh, I think, you, you know, I, I, <laughs> It's hard for me to comment on how uh, you know how concrete of a impact that that TV show has had, but but Arthur thought it was actually serious. I mean, he he qualified what he said seriously, um, and and you know I think we're seeing uh, I think I'm seeing it where I live now in Suffolk County. I'm seeing uh, implications of that. There's, uh, there's a lot of development taking place right now, uh, not just, uh, energy development, but, but, uh, even in a, even in a County of 9,000 people, um, big, uh, subdivisions that are being developed and, uh, just other, uh, other big changes coming to the landscape and more interest in living in these places. Uh, you, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, Todd Wilkinson in the mountain journal earlier. And I know Todd has, uh, has written a lot about those changes that he sees mm-hmm. coming, um, uh, over the years. Yeah. Uh, I think Todd calls it loving it to death. Um, and Dr. Middleton's been on this podcast and we've spoke about migration issues and he did make mention. I can't say that he made exact mention of the movie or this series Yellowstone, but he made mention of the increasing interest of people wanting to live here, have places to recreate here, invest here and his concern about what that means for migration corridors. Uh, yeah. and, And, and I don't know if people understand that Yellowstone itself in the wintertime is a borderline sterile environment. I mean, there's still some wildlife there, but without these migration corridors, taking that wildlife away from there and then reversing that again in the summer or the spring, uh, it, it's not. I, I think there's a misconception among a lot of people uh, about how that wildlife interacts on the landscape and therefore it results in not a full awareness of how important these migration corridors are and what would be the consequence to to our wildlife if these corridors continue to be infringed upon and and compromised uh angus you got a crack at any issue or two that you you know you're just gonna have a lot of good meat on a bone to, to report and talk about over the next few years in Wyoming? Well, I'll piggyback on this last topic by saying that the the resources that we're talking about, the elk migrations, the uh, uh, antelope migrations, are uh, they're international resources. They They are things that are valued by people around the world. Yet, whether they persist is a decision that is going to be made at the county planning commission level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that is true. I mean, it seems weird, but you're absolutely right, Angus. And on on this uh, planning panel, um, you've got you know, five people from the local community who have decided they want to get involved for one reason or another. 
and um, uh, coming from the West and in Wyoming, they highly value private property rights and the ability for uh, a person to do what she or he wants with uh, her or his land. And if a subdivision is uh, uh, is the desire, uh, sometimes it's uh, difficult to um, to say no. Uh, we don't want you to do that uh, because that fence is going to keep the elk from going here or get in the way of the antelope, or you're in a a, a, a wintering area. So there's a a great deal of resistance to putting those um, those types of restrictions on uh, private property. What, so what needs to happen is, um, I imagine, this could be a solution, is, is to somehow recognize that in an international value and transfer it to the the person whose property is in question and uh, conservation easements are one method uh, of um, uh, accomplishing that goal. Uh, since you mentioned Albert Summers, there's a conservation easement on uh, his ranch um, down there near Pinedale. Uh, so uh, that's one thing that, um, people need to step back and uh, take a look at and figure out how uh, how they're going to deal with this topic. Uh, some other things that are going to be real important uh, are uh, CWD and feed grounds, I, I believe. Uh, I mean, suppose one elk is run through a game processing facility and found to have CWD. Mm -hmm. um, what, what does that mean for all the other elk that that w went through elk carcasses that went through in the subsequent subsequent week before the test came back on the on the first one? I mean, is yeah. the whole facility contaminated? I don't know. Um, yeah. Water. Um, specifically the, the Colorado River Basin mm -hmm. uh, and the Ogallala Aquifer over in eastern Wyoming, which is getting yeah. uh, drained. Uh, Colorado uh, River Basin irrigators are, are discovering they might be able to get hundreds of dollars per acre foot for uh, not irrigating uh, a particular field. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting how that develops, especially given, again, the ethos in Wyoming that this water, which is property of the state, uh, is going to be permitted to, um, uh, uh, to a particular uh, acreage. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, the permit doesn't necessarily go to Randy Newberg. It goes, it goes to, uh, Randy's, uh, uh, Randy's South 40. Yeah. Uh, um, but that's being upended when, uh, you get an offer for, 
a heck of a lot of money, uh, and um, uh, you were able to transfer your water rights for a certain period to somebody else. Um, further, an- another one, of course, would be sage grouse, and mm-hmm. we hold, I believe, uh, um, close to half the sage grouse in the world in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly the largest uh, single uh, state. Uh, and if things deteriorate with regard to the population and its health across all 11 Western states, and there's a a decision that something needs to be done on a federal level to protect them, that's going to have big implications uh, yeah. uh, in Wyoming and everywhere else. And we are not the mass necessarily, um, uh, we don't hold our fate in our hands. Uh, there's Nevada, there's Utah, there's Idaho, uh, mm-hmm. there's Montana. Colorado, these other states that. Um, what what happens there may affect what happens uh, with regard to uh, potential restrictions in sage uh, brush country in Wyoming. Yeah, uh, I I I hope that people don't think just because we dodged a bullet in 2015 when we got a not uh, necessary decision from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service when they were petitioned to list the sage grouse it's like everyone breathed a big sigh of relief but that doesn't mean (laughs) we can continue to do crazy things on the landscape because if you look at the geographic if you took a a pan and took that geographic polygon of where sage grouse are the amount of impact that would have on everything from water development to energy development to public land grazing to our recreation to hunting to it's yeah i i think a lot of people forget about that because they they think we we somehow got a passing grade and therefore you don't ever have to go back and take the exam again uh i I don't see that to be the case but you both between the two of you you've I'm going to try to give some perspective of how what you do influences other people. You guys did some really good articles about uh, how in Pinedale, there's the migration corridor, the longest migration of any uh, ungulate in the lower 48 happens with your mule deer that go out to the Red Desert. They go out past Farson all the way down just north of Rock Springs, and they they spend their time up in the Wyoming range and all that country up there. You guys did some amazing articles about, getting back to your point, it's a county commission decision, a county planning board decision about some things that are going to either protect that migration corridor or allow that migration corridor to become further compromised. And... I took a bunch of your stuff and I called a bunch of people at Wyoming Migration Initiative and I'm like, you got maps of this? You should show me where this is. And they gave me that stuff. So those are things that we're putting in our content right now. We're trying to tell our audience that, you know what? You need to be involved at local planning, county planning stuff. If you're worried about a national treasure and my audience who loves to hunt, if you really enjoy hunting the mule deer of Western Wyoming, 
you need to be knowing what the Sublet County Planning Commission or the Sublet County Commissioners are doing because that resource that you treasure and value as a hunter is at at risk. And so, uh, and then you talk about water. Uh, when I was in college, I read the book Cadillac Desert. I was living in Reno, uh, going to college in Reno at the time, and the book had just come out. And one of my professors are like, hey, you love all this outdoor stuff. You need to go read this Cadillac Desert book. Well, it's been a long time since I read it. I don't even have it in my library anymore. But uh, reading a bunch of your stuff about the Upper Colorado Basin uh, and how you, you have this disproportionate population compared to the lower basin states. You know, you don't have a Las Vegas. You don't have a central Arizona project that's trying to take water out of that that system. Uh, reading some of your articles, I went and I, I downloaded that on Audible again, and I reread it. Well, I guess you don't read it if you listen to it, right? It's <laughs> kind of like cheating. But I travel so much that it's easy for me to just plug it in and listen to it. Uh, and it's been, there's been a few new additions to it, but, uh, in that, uh, the Cadillac desert, it's, (laughs) if anyone had, uh, a little bit of a crystal ball, Reasoner did when he wrote that a little bit. And now we're seeing a lot of that play out again. And I don't think people give full understanding to how impactful that would be to Green River, Rock Springs, uh, you know. Southwest Wyoming, you guys are are the head of a lot of that system. And uh, it caused me, point being, it caused me to go and re-listen to Cadillac Desert. And so much of that is relevant again today. And you talk about the aquifer over in eastern Wyoming. You know, a lot of, a lot of that gets discussed in that book. And so a lot of these issues revisit us, but if it wasn't for some of the articles you've written, it wouldn't have triggered me to go and do some of this stuff or think about some of this stuff and then try to bring that to my audience. And uh, you guys are just, you're doing a great job. And I, I really can't thank you enough. I, I hope that you, uh, you continue to do it. I hope you continue to be as uh, factual uh, uh I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm biased in saying that I think you're unbiased. Someone say, "Oh, you should, no, those guys are crazy." Do you guys ever get that? Just because you you are a journalist, you're you, someone puts you and categorizes you in one place or the other. Well, first of all, um, uh, thank you for what you do and uh, in informing your audience. Uh, um, it's easy for. It can be easy for people to pigeonhole uh, reporters. Uh, it's easy for all of us to stereotype others, uh, especially when we don't take the time to meet them. Uh, but Mike ha- uh, had a, a very interesting time uh, when he went to uh, Donald Trump's rally for Harriet Hageman um, a couple of years ago. And he went and, um, and here, here's, here's a reporter from Teton County uh, in Casper, surrounded by a sea of MAGA hats, uh, 
Uh, some people wouldn't talk to him. Uh, others did. And one of them, <laughs> one of them made a comment somewhere that basically, I can't believe it. He wrote, he published what I said. <laughs> I got to remember that. No, it's, it's funny. Uh, that, that's a great example. No, I ha- I have not been vilified. I mean, of course, I've been trolled here or there over the years. Yeah. I mean, it just comes with the territory. And mm-hmm. certainly some people think I'm biased about this issue or the other. I mean, it comes mm-hmm. with the territory. But no, yeah. that's a great example, Angus. Uh, you know, uh, th- that is correct. Some people didn't want to talk to me, but the vast majority of people at the Trump rally did. They were totally fine talking with a wildfire reporter from Teton County, and um, and they were kind to me. And uh, I, I actually one of my favorite memories of covering that event was uh, the, the person who ragged on the media the most at that event was Donald Trump. Uh, he was, he was, <laughs> He was going on the offense and, uh, you know, getting getting his uh, stadium to, to boo at the media, which were kept in kind of a little corral during the remarks. And and uh, I, had, I had interviewed someone, a, a lady outside, just outside the media corral prior to uh, Trump kind of ragging on us. And she... And when he made, uh, when he took a jab at us, she like tugged on my shirt sleeve and just said like, not all of you are that bad. And it was pretty, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty touching. <laughs> um, it was pretty touching. Uh, and, yeah. The some people there, yeah, were, were generally, yeah. you know, yeah. media does get vilified and people take, and people get a lot of threats and, uh, yeah. and uh, re- receive nasty nastiness, but uh, that's not always the case, and most people don't do yeah. in, in Wyoming. I feel well. The the times that I've I I always use my platforms to say what I think people benefit from hearing, not what creates more listeners or creates more downloads. I don't really care if I only get two downloads, but I think the topic was worth the discussion. Fine. I, that, I'm going to do that. Uh, but a, a friend of mine once told me when I was getting an awful lot of heat, he said, Randy, and this person was a, a pilot in Vietnam. He said, you know you're over the valuable target when the amount of flack is intense. <laughs> and uh, don't shy away from it. You're, you're, you're not going to hit the target if you're afraid of a little flack, was, was kind of his point. And uh, uh I, I've kept you guys longer than I promised, but uh, you think we'll ever get over these topics on the big fuzzies, toothies of grizzly bears and wolves? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I I get drawn into that all the time, and I made reference how I spent that that period of time on the governor's grizzly bear roundtable, and that was kind of like a crash course on the ESA on the process that things go through to get either listed or delisted, uh, and then. Montana built its elk or it's a wolf plan just after that. So Arnie dude, who was our endangered species coordinator, he's like, Hey, you're going to be on the wolf committee also. So I feel like I've had way too much of that more than my fail that I really want to. 
And in Montana, I don't know what we did, what caused someone not to fill their elk tag before wolves were put on the landscape in 1995, because I'm sure there were still some unfilled elk tags. But since then, the only reason anyone doesn't fill their elk tag, it seems like, is because of wolves. Uh, do you see us ever getting past this, you know, the the heated... Uh, I, I think wolves and grizzly bears get used as a political football, get used as a social football, get used as a lot of things. Uh, when really, there's, there's a lot to be celebrated about what we've done for those species, how landscapes and people have changed their behaviors to accommodate them to the degree they have. Uh, you guys ever see us getting beyond that or is it just too juicy of a topic for both sides? It's it's like, I, I can't put this one down. Well, I, I'll observe that before some of us came into this country, uh, the people who were ranching here, uh, had been told by the government and, and this is not my theory or thesis, uh, Come on out, um, claim the land, divert the water, cut the timber, uh, pan for gold, uh, um, shoot the predator, uh, graze on the public land, and uh, um, and you'll you, you'll be able to uh, raise a family and create a community, and then. It was like, well, you know, you can graze on the public land, but not until June 15th. Uh, we don't want you diverting that much water. Well, you need a permit to cut down the uh, uh, the timber. And you know those uh, those wolves and grizzly bears that, um, that you eradicated to uh, protect your herds? We're going to bring them back. Uh, <laughs> That's a good perspective, and, and so uh, you can you can understand. There's a there's a bit of consternation there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think what that points out, Angus, is we all have a tendency to think of history only starts when our awareness of something started. But anything before that, oh, that's not history. We just look at it from the context of our own history. And what you just said there, or me, is like, well, wait a second. Yeah. Imagine if that was how your family came and did that. Sure. You'd have a different view of it today. And and with that as a foundation, uh, uh, people were uh, quick to say that wolves have... Um, decimated our wildlife herds. Uh, and this was going on a little bit too much for, for me to uh, just let go by. Uh, <laughs> some, some years back. And so, because I knew that, for example, the elk herds were above objective. Yeah. And you had these people saying that the wolves and the bears were decimating our wildlife herds when, um, when the numbers, uh, at least in the, in the context of elk at that particular time and other species as well, uh, were above, above what Wyoming game and fish wanted. Uh, so, 
so the, the what's happened is is the wolves have made elk a little bit more natural, wary. Um, they might be in larger groups. They they, they might be uh, changing their habits, and yeah. that might be uh, more challenging for uh, your average hunter. Uh, in Wyoming, we still have an incredible success uh, rate for elk. That's yeah. basically unheard of among um, big game species. Yeah, um, I'm telling you, du- double all the other states. It seems, but yeah, yeah, it is, and that's where you know uh, this podcast. We've had all the Montana elk managers on this podcast, and uh, my point has been, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Wyoming's done a lot of things right. You know, we, we could look to our neighbors to the south and maybe learn a thing or two. But then again, you're taking a different cultural evolution of how hunting of elk has happened in Montana. It is, even though we're right next to each other, there are cultural differences in, in that between the two states. I mean, with elk hunting success rates, I think that the one thing Wyoming has done the, mo- the most right is just not have that many people. We only got, <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's just not as many people pursuing the elk, but they're less pressured and it's easier to get one. And there's more elk per hunter available. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Five, you know, there, I, I grew up in suburban, Minneapolis area and there were more than twice as many people in the county where I grew up in as there are in the state of Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. You guys ever see that changing? I don't see it changing anytime soon. Um, we just don't have, there's no kind of industry on the up, uh, other than I'd say, you know, uh, public land amenities and natural resources and wildlife, uh, that's going to drive huge numbers of people to Wyoming. And it's just, it's a, uh, environmentally and weather wise, climate wise, it's a tough state. I mean, it's a, it's a high plateau. It's very windy. It's a long winter. And, um, yeah. yeah, there's not a, there's not a Denver, there's not a Bozeman. There's not these kind of magnet communities yet that are going to drive real, you know, big, big numbers of people, at least not yeah. uh, that I see in the foreseeable future. And also to step back to your earlier question, you know, I'll probably be, Randy, I'll probably be a journalist for another 30 years or so before I retire. And I don't see myself ever letting up on grizzly bear and wolf coverage. I think it will continue. Uh, They will continue to be divisive species that demand headlines uh, for, for a lot of time to come. Uh, You know, the way Wyoming manages wolves and and seeks to manage grizzly bears is really to kind of hem them into the northwest corner of the state near the yellowstone ecosystem and and not a lot a lot of establishment outside that and there will always be residents who think that they should be allowed to kind of reclaim old habitats Mm -hmm. and there will always be residents who think that you know it's good the way it is and we don't want grizzly bears and wolves and i think that tension just is not going to go away yeah well as long as we have those type of species that bring those type of topics and bring people together from different perspectives, Wildfiles always going to have a long list of topics to be writing about. We'll be there. <laughs> yeah. You, 
You will. History has shown, Angus, that you guys will be there. And I, I really want to thank you guys. And it would not be uh, I, proper of me to not give a plug for where people can follow you. Uh, I I get it because you know, I'm a subscriber. Go to whyofile.com. And I would encourage everybody to become a subscriber. And if you value independent journalism and you you are interested in these topics, I don't care where you live. Wyoming, for some reason, is like this crucible. Maybe it's because you have Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, or maybe it's you're just like this intersection of where the prairie meets the mountains, or I don't know what it is. Wyoming fascinates me, your your issues, the way that you report them. I don't care where you live, you'd benefit by being a subscriber and reading the work of Angus and Mike and and the rest of your crew there. And uh, hopefully people will do that because uh, I think the the issues that you guys write about and the perspective you give it is not something I find in my subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal. Some of these topics pop up there in my subscription to the New York Times or whatever, but they're never done through the lens of people who live there like most like you guys do. And you guys give a valuable voice to that. And uh, I hope you keep doing it. Yeah. Awfully kind of you. Thanks, Randy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know both of you had a lot of projects and I'm like, can we squeak it in on this morning? And uh, here I am. I told you that we'd go no more than 90 minutes. We're at an hour and 28 minutes. So we're at 88 minutes, guys. Any any last thing you want to leave anyone with before we wrap it up? No, I'll just echo your plug to subscribe to Wildfile. It's a very, very <laughs> important news source that everyone needs to listen to read. <laughs> I, I would agree. Angus, we're going to hear more of you on, on Corner Crossing? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Uh, it's a little bit dependent on uh, what the lawyers uh, do next. Uh, um, but they're going to do something. So yeah. uh, stay tuned. And uh, uh, thanks for your interest in Wildfile, Randy. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Keep up the great work. I appreciate your time today. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye. When the sun came-